0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by MeUndies. Deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of MeUndies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all-black classics to fun, expressive prints. And they come in sizes extra small to 4XL guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody, And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh-so-comfy, making it ideal for all-day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T. That's MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T for 20% off plus free shipping.
2: Dot .com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash sacred text.
3: Chapter 9. The Woes of Mrs. Weasley. Dumbledore's abrupt departure took Harry completely by surprise. He remained sitting where he was in the chained chair, struggling with his feelings of shock and relief. The Wismagot were all getting to their feet, talking and gathering up their papers and packing them away. I'm Casper Takyle.
2: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
3: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
2: So, Casper, my friend Julia, and I walked the Wicklow Way a few years ago. And the Wicklow Way is a path through Ireland and it takes about five days to walk. And, you know, we spent months planning this walk and Most days on the Wicklow Way are about 13, 14 miles of walking, but we decided that we didn't want to carry camping gear, so we were always trying to get to the next town in order to sleep in a bed safely, et cetera. So in looking at the map, it became clear that there was going to be one day in which we were going to have to hike about 22 miles. And, you know, we thought about it, and we thought it's worse to carry camping gear over five days than it is to like have one hard day of hiking. And in thinking about it, we were like, Ireland is rolling hills. It's not really hiking. And this isn't even the Cliffs of Moher or anything. It's pretty easy walking as far as through hikes go. And so we signed up, but we were like, it's not going to be that bad. It's going to be a tough day, but not impossible. Well, we got to about mile 15, which again was like three miles more than we were usually walking on a day-to-day basis. It just became clear to me that rolling hills in Ireland, when you've walked 15 miles, feel like Everest. And we got to the bottom of this hill, and I swear, I would have emptied my savings account to not climb this hill. I would have thrown all the money in the world if the only thing between me and this hill was a Ritz-Carlton that I would have had to, like, sell my dog in order to stay at. I'd have made that deal with the devil. I would have been like, worth it. I am throwing all my savings and selling out all my friends to be in a bed right now. But there weren't, right? Like, there was nothing around. We were more than halfway along, so going back wasn't an option. The literal only option was to go forward. But I did it, right? And it isn't a matter of, like, Thomas the Tank Engine, I think I can, so I did, it is a, like, I didn't want to sleep in the pouring rain and had to, and so I did. And I really think of myself as someone who doesn't have any willpower. I am supposed to not eat any sugar, and I don't eat sugar, except when I do eat sugar. And when I do, it's because I want to. Willpower is not something that I have much access to, nor apparently that I care to have much access to. But what I've realized that I do is that I make strategic decisions to set myself up to not have an option later. So if there was a box of Oreos in my house, I would eat all the Oreos. I am not a two Oreo person. I am a zero or 30 Oreo person. And so I don't buy Oreos, right? So those moments of willpower come when I'm at the drugstore and don't buy the Oreos or when I'm mapping out a trip and agree to walk 22 miles. So I'm curious whether or not we, like, count that as willpower or if that's something else. And so basically, I just don't really understand willpower, and I'm sure it's a thing, and I want you to explain it to me. (laughs)
3: I'm really interested in this idea of where does willpower happen? Like, is it in the moment when we have a craving or when we're in distress? Or is it in the moment when we choose to put ourselves in a situation? That's really juicy. But where the real juice is made, Vanessa, is in our 30-second recap.
2: Ooh, you decided to go with juice. I would have been like where we show real willpower (laughs) is 15 seconds into a 30-second recap.
3: (laughs) Okay, Vanessa, here we go. Three, two, one. Go.
2: Everybody is really excited that Harry gets to go back to Hogwarts. Um Lucius Malfoy is super corrupt. Sirius is not one of the happy people that Harry gets to go back to Hogwarts. Um everybody comes over for dinner and um, uh, Ron gets selected as prefect, which I did the math and I think like a quarter of Hogwarts students get to be prefect, but good for him. And then um, Moody is like, there's a bugger and Mrs. Weasley fights the bugger and it turns out that she's worried about everybody dying, which seems like a pretty rational fear and more.
3: Yeah, it's so sad. It's super sad. Like you just find her on the floor like convulsing and sobs.
2: Yeah. Okay. On your mark, get set, go
3: so uh, lots of things happen in this chapter it's like a really big chapter um, we see Mad-Eye Moody like be at the party and he's like looking at everything and he gives Harry this photograph of the previous incarnation of the Order of the Phoenix um, for someone who talks a lot about women in the podcast you seem to have forgotten that Hermione also gets made a prefect which I think is very important who? Uh, <laughs> and everyone is like kind of surprised that Harry made it off scot-free which I really enjoyed um, and then um, Lupin solves. The bogart. Ding. Thanks for the setup,
2: (laughs) Casper. Is there somewhere that you would like to start in this conversation with willpower?
3: Well, right off the bat. In these pages, I feel like we see a couple of moments of willpower, which is as Harry bumps into Arthur outside, and they, you know, hooray, hooray, celebrate, celebrate. They continue walking and see both Fudge and then Percy walk past. And Fudge, first of all, like the text tells us, seemed quite determined not to notice Harry. And then Percy, like Fudge, he completely ignored his father. You know, and I think we've all done this, where you're like walking across the street, and you're like, I really don't want to see that person. I'm just going very obviously like look the other way at a pigeon or at this very boring building that's become very interesting to me but you know the stakes are so heightened because this is a relationship between father and son right this isn't someone awkward from your class or someone who just said goodbye to that now is back again like this is percy and arthur and like that willpower actually hurts them both as well. And I feel like willpower is so often about the lesser of two evils. Like you were using that example of like walking more versus sleeping in the rain and dark, walking more as the lesser evil and, you know, will do less pain. I feel like for Percy, him having a conversation with his dad and like being honest about what's going on would be more painful than walking past him without acknowledging him. I feel like Sometimes willpower is just about, like, choosing the option that's less painful.
2: Yeah, but I—so I'm not sure that I see what Percy is doing right now as willpower, more as, like, stubbornness, is digging his heels in. It's prideful.
3: Yeah, he has to admit defeat if he was going to speak with Arthur.
2: Right. I'm wondering if willpower is wrapped up in the desire to change. In order to be, like, true willpower— you have to be going against your former self. You have to be battling within yourself and therefore it has to be about wanting to change.
3: But I feel like that's what he's doing, right? Like his normal state would be to be like loving and together with his family. I mean, yes, there've been issues for a long time, but this is an extreme state, I think for Percy and the rest of the Weasleys. So I feel like there's maybe something here about a mix of stubbornness and willpower? Like, stubbornness is about not wanting to admit you're wrong or not wanting to admit at least that someone else might have a good idea or has a different way of doing it correctly. And willpower is part of that. I mean, maybe that's an interesting question. Like, what's the difference between stubbornness and willpower?
2: So I think that Mrs. Weasley is acting differently around percy out of willpower Mm. i think that she has made the decision to let percy go and is sort of hopeful and prayerful that percy comes back to them which we find out later in the chapter but has been willing to change her state on him out of respect for percy Mm. right like she we know that she is the person who went over and begged And she could be camping outside of his flat in London and kicking and crying every day. And instead, she has made a choice to let her son go, which we see again and again goes against her very being. She is still nagging Bill about his hair. Like she is a (laughs) woman who does not let go of her children, but she has let go of Percy. So that I see as willpower. But I really see what Mr. Weasley and— Percy are, are doing here as, like, dumb pride. If they were capable of willpower, they would risk saying hello to each other. It would be formal and curt but polite, right? That is willpower, to be willing to look at another person and know that you have the strength to end the conversation according to your new changed difficult limits, But in fact, what they're saying is like, I don't have any willpower in order to let you pass. I have to not look at you. The moment just a second later, though, where I do think we see willpower on the part of Mr. Weasley is in his interaction with Lucius.
3: Oh, yeah. Because we meet Lucius Malfoy in the corridor talking to Fudge in a place where he shouldn't be. And it, you know, all the signs of dodginess are there.
2: And I mean, he's like basically admitting to corruption. (laughs) He's like, I'm very important here. I'm not an elected official. I don't work here. But I'm important. I write checks. I write checks.
3: (laughs) And I get access.
2: Yeah. And so we know that Mr. Weasley and Lucius are capable and willing to start hitting each other, and we know that they are willing to, like, get really confrontational with one another, and Mr. Weasley doesn't, and I think that the reason that he doesn't is because of willpower. I think in front of Harry, he doesn't want to be throwing punches, and I think it's bad for the order, right? Like, he can't give Fudge an excuse to fire him, and he needs to have access to the ministry in order to act as a spy in this way. And so I think that the thing that keeps him from behaving in a detrimental way is some willpower here. I would have, I probably would have punched him.
3: I think there's some fear in here as well as willpower, like the the power dynamics are such now that he no longer gets to borrow the ministry cars, right? There's a lot of privileges that have been taken away from him. So I think he feels much more tenuous in his position. He's clearly having to restrain himself to kind of be on best behavior when he would rather be doing something else. That's very clear.
2: It reminded me of a moment that I had just this past weekend. I had breakfast with an old friend, and I hadn't seen her in a long, long time. And I think she forgot that I was Jewish because she made this casual, pretty anti-Semitic comment at the beginning of breakfast. And I thought about it for half a second, and I decided not to say anything. I decided not to make the whole breakfast about this awkward moment. And I don't know if it was cowardice, willpower, politeness. I don't know if it was the right thing or the wrong thing. Certainly my instinct in those moments is to storm off, is to be like, that was anti-Semitic. Just want to remind you I'm a Jew. Bye. And I didn't. I sat and had a polite breakfast with her and did not educate her in any way. And it's been haunting me ever since. It's been five days. And I'm still like, was that willpower or was that cowardice?
3: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Did it feel like you could just move on and be present with the conversation or did it feel like in the text it says Arthur's fingers biting into Harry's shoulders when they're with Lucius? Like, does it feel like that moment is still like biting into you now?
2: Yeah, it definitely like cast a pall over the rest of the breakfast. I still asked about her. It was a perfectly pleasant meal. And I'm glad that I got to spend time with her because she's someone who I almost never get to see. But yeah, I I don't love that I've just like sent her out as somebody who feels completely comfortable making comments like that.
3: And I think so many people do this, right? Like you're in situations where something really is not okay, but the risk of saying something or the risk of doing something is so big That you can't do that every time and you just have to spend so much energy internally, physically in our bodies. I mean, people who have hypertension are often people who have marginalized identities, right? Like there's so much happening in our bodies to help us like make it through seemingly everyday interactions. And it feels like your experience with this friend really mirrors that for me in some way.
2: Yeah. You and I were just talking this past weekend about the musical, which we both love, Book of Mormon.
3: The Book of Mormon.
2: Which I, you know, just shared a quick story with you, which is that when I saw it, people stormed out. Right. They did it in a respectful way. They waited for the end of the song and then they left. I guess you have to know someone's interiority in order to know if it's willpower or not. But I just had so much respect for that, right? Like, I believe that you should protest with your body.
3: I believe (laughs) that you should protest with your body.
2: But maybe I do think it would have been braver of them to sit there and watch the whole thing.
3: Well, so this is really interesting because I do think there's all of this excitement about the language of grit in psychology right now that students can make it through difficult situations if we develop their grittiness, which is really so much about willpower. There are moments where I think we see some of the characters in the chapter do that very well. Like Ron is so excited about becoming a prefect and then does all of this work to kind of play it down for Harry. And he's like, oh, I don't really want it. like, But like, of course, he's thrilled. And then when Molly says, oh, would you like an owl? Oh, no, you've already got pig. Like, what would you like? And Ron says, could I have a broom? Not a very big one or a very fast one. Like he does all of this self-management work to kind of manage expectations and not ask for too much. He's trying to make this own elevation and status of a prefect not a big deal for Harry. And he's trying to turn this gift offer not into something that's overwhelmingly expensive to Molly. Like, Ron does really well in terms of that kind of willpower, I think.
2: Yes. I think that what I am realizing is that rarely when we have willpower, is it entirely just about willpower. Right? Right. And this narrative of, like, the only thing that got me on the Supreme Court was my hard work and my willpower. And beer. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I went to a high school with a golf course and had this dad who had money, et cetera, that it's only my hard work and we busted our butts. I think that the problem is with the myth around willpower, that willpower is one ingredient in many and that it's okay if it's motivated motivated by a thousand other things it is motivated by empathy for Harry and the fact that he didn't get the prefect badge and it's motivated by the fact that he's embarrassed in front of Fred and George that he's now this goody goody and it's motivated by like love for his mom that you know she can't really afford to give him a present and he knows that but he wants the present the tool that he uses is willpower but the motivations are multiple and complicated and any story about how the only difference between me and everybody else is that I worked harder, is nonsense.
3: So let me ask you this question. There is one point in the text that I do think challenges this idea that willpower is often so much about designing good choices for yourself later on. And that's about Sirius and Azkaban, because he is in this impossible situation and he survives through it. At one point, Hermione says, I just think he's been lonely for a very, very long time. Sirius makes so many bad choices, especially in this book. But I feel like he's been able to survive. Like, that survival instinct, that grittiness, that willpower kept him alive through Azkaban in a way I think I haven't really grappled with yet.
2: Yeah, and I think that he's been rewarded in Azkaban for a very generous choice that he made as a teenager, which was to become an Animagus in order to keep Lupin company. Right? Like, Uh. he's able to survive Azkaban because he is such a deeply empathetic person, right? Like, it's hard to become an animagus. And he worked really hard in order to achieve that.
3: I'd never thought about it that way, that it's his generosity. Because, like, inadvertently, he had made an earlier choice. That willpower earlier on with Lupin is what helps him through this situation. I'd never thought of that before. I
2: hadn't either. That's why we do this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but that's beautiful. It
2: is. And I think the other thing about willpower is he had it for so long and And now he's basically a prisoner again. I think that eventually willpower runs out. How long can you survive alone and telling yourself a story of I'm going to get out of here and avenge my best friends. I'm going to be a supportive godfather and sit here alone with no one but Buckbeak and my screaming mother in this disgusting old house. And people do. People survive incredible things. Like nobody knows that. Better than I do. Like, I was raised by those people. But I do think eventually we just need sympathy for the fact that it has to run out eventually.
3: What you just said is totally reframed serious in this book completely for me. First of all, to see Sirius's life as a series of imprisonments. He starts in the black house, wanting to escape, waiting to get out. He runs away as a teenager. Then, when he's like falsely accused, he's on the run. He gets put into Azkaban, survives that. Then he gets out, but still has to be in hiding. And now he's back in this original prison all over again. Like, no wonder that he makes rash choices when he's out in the world. We're going to see that when he goes out with Harry as a dog towards the the train station. But most importantly, we're going to see that later in the book. His whole life is one of imprisonment and escape to some extent.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by MeUndies. deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. Me undies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order, plus free shipping, at MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T. That's MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T for 20% off, plus free shipping. Me undies, Comfort from the outside in.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
3: Vanessa, we should really talk about Molly Weasley. I mean, she's in the title of the chapter. And where do you see willpower interacting with Molly in this chapter?
2: So I see exactly the conclusion that we came to anyway, that basically this Argument about willpower that with enough willpower you can get through anything is complete nonsense. Ooh. Because Molly Molly has all the willpower in the world. She is like indefatigable, right? She takes care of not just her children, but other people's children, not just her family, but the entire order. And she can't beat this bogger. She just can't. Mm. And this is not a lack of skill. She's a very skilled witch. This is not a lack of willpower. This is she has too much, right? Like she cares about too many people. And she has too firm of an understanding of what's at stake, which we hear in her monologue right after the Bogart fight, right? She says, like, there are so many of us. There's just no chance that we all survive this. And it is just the fact that she understands the stakes that— makes this bugger so terrifying to her. So with all the willpower in the world, there are certain things that you just can't beat.
3: I just want to read the text because it's so affecting. <sighs> she says, I see them dead all the time, all the time I dream about it. Don't tell Arthur. I'm just so worried. Half the family's in the order. It'll be a miracle if we all come out through this. And Percy's not talking to us. What if something dreadful happens and we never make up? And what's going to happen if Arthur and I get killed? Who's going to look after Ron and Ginny? I mean, it's just a litany of you can feel that weight just growing and growing. And the thing that really strikes me is that she says, don't tell Arthur. Not only is she feeling pain, she's feeling shame for feeling pain. So it's just this toxic cocktail of just too much.
2: That's so interesting that you saw it as shame. I saw that as also a moment of willpower of oh. like he already has so much to worry about. If these aren't his worries, I don't want to put my worries on him. He is worried about the order. He's worried about keeping his job. He's worried about having to see Percy at work and not talk to him. He's worried about a whole slew of other things. And I don't want to add
3: my burden to his. Yeah, I was seeing it more like that he would also be worried, of course, about everyone's well-being and that, you know, she has to be strong for him. And, like, she doesn't want him to know that she's also struggling. I mean, whatever it is, it's just too much or...
2: Yeah, and it's completely isolating. Yes, exactly. And Lupin does a great job of stepping in and taking some of the burden and telling her, like, of course we'll take care of Ron and Ginny. But he also minimizes her very legitimate concerns.
3: Yeah, I'm so interested you picked up on this too. The way he solves the problem, I mean, he gets rid of the bogart. there's some practical help, but then he says, what, do you think we'd let them starve? He's trying to make light of this situation. I feel like that's often my go-to approach is like to use humor to comfort or be with people. But I feel like Lupin needs some chaplaincy training. It's like, really, he just needs to be with Molly in this moment and not try, as you say, to like minimize it. But I want to come back to something you just said before, that this whole experience is isolating. I mean, literally, she's going up to fight the Boggart on her own. Now that it's a small Boggart to deal with. But I feel like this links into how we think about willpower, that it's about you as an individual, rather than thinking about like community willpower and sharing that burden as much as possible and supporting one another when one person's, you know, willpower ebbs, the other one can come forward. And I think this is part of that American story, particularly of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and individual Strength is going to overcome every structural difficulty, and that's just not true. So I think there's something interesting here about communal willpower or or community power that's really worth paying attention to.
2: And maybe the greatest act of willpower is in the vulnerable moment of asking for help. Indeed. So, Casper, we are going to do Lectio Divina today. Yay! And this is where my finger landed. You were so keen to help the order, said Mrs. Weasley. You can do your bit by making the headquarters fit to live in. So, Casper, step one of Lectio is what does this sentence literally say?
3: So, at this point, the teenagers are cleaning out a particularly disgusting closet, I think, or a desk or something. It's very grimy. And they're, they're starting to complain a bit like, Ugh, you know, and Mrs. Weasley saying like, listen, you wanted to help the order like this is what needs doing right now. You can't go out and like fight Voldemort directly. And we need to make this a, a habitable headquarters. And so like suck it up and get busy. Yes. Boom. Yeah, Mrs. Weasley.
2: Step two, we ask ourselves what is happening allegorically in the sentence and I will read it to you once more. You were so keen to help the order, said Mrs. Weasley. You can do your bit by making headquarters fit to live in.
3: Oh, that's interesting. I'm thinking about that phrase, fit to live in. I'm thinking of Harry under the staircase. Like, where do we first meet him? Like, he's in a cupboard. There's a perception that the place you live in is sort of representative of who you are. You know, that idea of, like, the prince lived in a beautiful castle, and that that says something about who the prince is or what's in the prince's heart. And it made me think of, you know, Petunia and the fact that she makes Harry live under the stairs is like a symbol of like, both I don't care about you, but also that you are bad. There's this kind of false analogy between where you live. I mean, we even see this with people when they're applying for jobs. Like if you have the wrong zip code or postcode, there's all sorts of scientific studies that demonstrate that people will dismiss your application because of where you're from.
2: So I suddenly noticed the word, the order, and the fact that that is what they're called. Ooh. So Seder, which is the ritual dinner during Passover, means order. It is a meal. It is a highly ritualized meal that is all about the order in which you do things. And then the order in which you do things leads you to this, like, happy ending of freedom. And so it's just such an interesting word to call themselves, right, the order of the phoenix. I mean, like, phoenix is obviously a really interesting word to call them themselves, that they will rise again and that they will survive adversity. But that there's an order to follow in order to get to that phoenix rising had never occurred to me until I see, like, the order. I don't know the etymology of the word order, so I only really, like, it only speaks to me of this, like, stater meaning. But that there's a proper order to do things in. And if we follow it together, we can get to freedom is what it spoke to
3: me of. What that reminds me of is, especially the combination with order and Phoenix, is the necessity of children being in this headquarters, right? Like that there's something about the order of generations and, you know, someone dying and someone being born. Like that's the the wheel of time and the wheel of generations. I love it when people talk about, you know, that this work is not a sprint, it's not a marathon, but it's a relay race through generations. And so I just love thinking about the kids and especially this whole Weasley family wrapped up within this order that feels so pertinent as you describe that.
2: Okay. So step three, Casper, is what does this remind you of in your own life? So I'll read it one more time. It is, you were so keen to help the order, said Mrs. Weasley. You can do your bit by making headquarters fit to live in. And what it reminds me of in my life is how much I wish somebody would tell me specifically what I can do with my time in order to help. Mm. You know, like, I recycle and I'm a vegetarian and I walk and bike as much as I can instead of drive. But if someone were to tell me a way that you can materially help is by cleaning this house, right, like I often just feel like I don't really know what to do. It just spoke to me of how jealous I am. I want Mrs. Weasley to come and be like, do you want to help? This is how you can help. And I'm like, yes, okay, thank you.
3: So I have a cheeky question, which is like, do we actually think that cleaning this desk is going to help? Or is this Mrs. Weasley creating busy work in order for the kids not to interrupt the work that really matters?
2: Well, either way, that's work, right? That's true. But I do believe in a clean house making for a good workspace. If I want to have a productive day, I, like, wipe down the table and wipe down the desk, and I believe in that personally. What about you? Where do you see yourself
3: in this quote? I'm thinking about this language of headquarters— you know, I, I work in a remote team for my day job, which I love. And there's a sense of like, when you're all together, that moment of like, oh, yeah. But I'm also thinking about it in terms of my family, my family's in Europe. And so that does still feel like familial headquarters. And does that change as you go through this generational cycle? You know, if I do stay here in the United States, or is there a moment when you're like recalled to home base? I don't know.
2: So step Of Lactio Divina, we ask ourselves what we feel called to. And I will read one more time. It is, you were so keen to help the order, said Mrs. Weasley. You can do your bit by making headquarters fit to live in.
3: Oh my God. I feel so convicted by this. We've been talking about willpower the whole time. And this sentence is saying, you made this choice that you wanted to help. Now go do the thing that's actually hard. It's gonna take willpower. And I'm just thinking about like the decisions I've made of like I want to show up for this friend. I want to show up for this friend. Now I have to show up for them, even if it's inconvenient. Like, I want to be a kind of person who, who makes a commitment and keeps it. And, like, I've made the commitment. Now I've got to keep it.
2: I agree with that. And it makes me feel called to making fewer commitments.
3: <laughs> That's the real takeaway.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimald Place Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.
3: Today's voicemail is from Claire Berman.
0: Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. This is Claire from Boston, Massachusetts. I just listened to your episode on anger, and in particular, I was reflecting on what you said about Harry's anger being so intensely directed at Ron and Hermione as the people closest to him and the ones who were safest to share that with. It made me think about grief and trauma, and I wanted to add another layer to that conversation. After my father died suddenly in December 2017, I was lucky to have people in my life who are willing to witness my grief. They were loving and supportive, and I think in a lot of ways they showed up the way that Ginny does in this chapter. But there were also people who, for whatever reasons, didn't or weren't able to show up. People who I had fully expected would show up given our closeness before it all happened. Some didn't acknowledge my father's death at all much less the trauma I had experienced in watching him die in front of me. Some of them would reach out occasionally about other everyday things without ever mentioning my dad. Others stayed silent for a long time, and then maybe eight months later would resurface and try to talk to me about grief. And when some of them finally did reach out, even though I'd felt such a longing for that connection to materialize, I was surprised to find it so challenging to receive it from them without anger and resentment that they'd waited so long. Their reaching out at empathy at that point felt so out of sync with the way I now viewed or felt about the state of the relationship that in some cases it even felt upsetting more than comforting. It didn't matter that I could imagine so many reasons why it might have been hard for them to reach out. It really just felt like the window of opportunity had closed because from my perspective, they hadn't showed up when I needed it the most. So when Harry sees Ron and Hermione after that month of being isolated with his own grief and trauma after seeing Cedric die, I understood perfectly when, as the text says, the warm glow that had flared inside him at the sight of his two best friends was extinguished as something icy flooded the pit of his stomach. To me, one part of Harry's anger in this moment is stemming from that sense of deflation that comes from longing so desperately to be witnessed and seen by the people you love most, and then realizing that the purity of that connection has been deeply damaged. He's already changed as a person as a result of this trauma, and they weren't there to see it. So when Hermione extends those beautiful lines of empathy, From his perspective, it might just feel enraging or upsetting that she would try to tap directly into how he was feeling after leaving him to deal with his feelings on his own for so long. It might even feel like a painful reminder of the support he could have been receiving from her all along had she chosen to extend it. It doesn't mean that repair isn't possible for Harry or for me, but I just really empathized with how confusing that must feel for him. So I wonder what you think. And I thank you all so much for making this beautiful podcast.
3: Claire, thank you so much for that voicemail. And, you know, it really makes me think that I think I've probably been one of those people before with friends or family kind of fumbling in how to respond and probably sometimes doing more damage than helping. And so I'm, it's really helpful for me to hear your perspective and your story and t- to see Harry respond to Hermione and Ron in that way, I feel like I understand more of why he does that.
2: Claire, thank you so much. I really found that so helpful. And I think what I feel called to is when somebody who I know who maybe I don't even feel that close to has gone through something to just ask them directly and give them permission to do what they need, because we all need such different things in grief and in moments of crisis. And I think that I just feel called to asking more directly what it is that people
3: need. It's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And we haven't really talked about him much, but I want to bless Mad-Eye Moody. He brings this photo out of the order as it was and points out this list of names, Marlene McKinnon, Fabian and Gideon Pruitt, amongst many others, and of course, Harry's parents and, and other people that we already know. To me, it spoke to his capacity to keep going amidst just one loss after another. And the language he uses to describe their deaths are often quite gruesome. You know, she took down five death eaters as she went, or they split his body into multiple parts. It it just made me think someone who suffered so physically and throughout the whole of the last book has been imprisoned in this terrifying way. Yeah, I just saw Mad-Eye in a whole new context really and wanted to give him a blessing and anyone who's continuing after just one thing after another and giving of themselves to a cause that they believe in how about you vanessa
2: i'm gonna go super obvious and bless molly Hmm. but what i want to bless her for is the monologue she gives of all the potential horror she sees i think that she is really confronting the risk and is fighting anyway there is a middle road that the Weasley family could take of Arthur knowing that Voldemort has risen but still showing up for work and then sort of seeing how this all plays out. And they are pure blood so they could just, like, hide in plain sight and go about their lives. And it's not ignorance that is keeping them from that path. She completely understands how high the risk is and is willing to confront that and go on anyway. They say that it isn't brave if you aren't scared. Mm. And she is so scared, which I just think makes her so, so brave.
3: Mm. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we've started a Patreon. Go support us there. Or leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail to Harry at gmail.com.
2: Next week we will be reading Chapter 10, Luna Love Good, through the theme of humility. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkail, and me Vanessa Sultan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. For now, you can find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm.
3: Thanks to Claire Berman for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Amanda Madigan, Bridget Goggin, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you next week. Are we getting deep fried pizza? Deep pan pizza. (laughs) I always forget that that's the right one. Deep dish. (laughs)
2: dish. (laughs) Sure.
3: Are we going to get deep dish pizza? (laughs) Jesus. Are we going to get (laughs) deep... Are we going to get deep dish pizza while we're there?
1: Blooper out of the way. (laughs) Done. Ding.